Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Monday, September the 13th, 2021, and uh, got a lot of stuff going on today. Uh, some announcements, some other informational stuff, got a bunch of stuff we're covering because we're doing a listener feedback show, which we haven't done in a while since we've changed the schedule. Uh, sometimes those don't happen, and I, I really think it's important that we keep doing these. These are things that you guys send me. Sometimes these shows are really question-centric. How do I? How should I? What do you think about? And sometimes they're more um, centered around things happening in the world, articles and news stories and stuff. Today is the, is the latter type mostly. I think I got one or two... Uh, you know, questions from a listener specific to that listener to talk about. Most of this, though, is things going on in the world, and we'll dig into all of that in just a minute. Before we do, let me remind you guys that you can always help support this show by supporting our sponsor. Sponsor today, number one today, is JM Bullion. Um, I'm bullish on crypto. Everybody knows that. And every time I talk about crypto, I have to get somebody, I think we should invest in silver and gold. Yeah, me too. It's called diversity in your investments. It's called actual diversity in your investments. Uh, if you think you're diversified in your investments, because in your 401k you have small cap, mid cap, uh, you know, growth and in income and bond funds. No, you have all securities denominated in dollars. You're not diversified. That's one piece of the diversification of a portfolio. And so I think we should all be investing in crypto right now, and I think we should all have some physical gold and or silver. And the place that I get mine, and I think you should get yours, is Jam Bullion. And you might say, well, that's because they're a sponsor. Well, yes, that is a reason. If you listen to the show, you like the show, and you gain from the show, you should probably at least consider dealing with our sponsors. But what if they cost you less to buy the same product? Because they are less than, like, Lear Capital, Monix, and Atmix. Wouldn't that even be more reason to do it? What if they shipped all their orders for free, which they do? And what if they gave members to my MSB a discount on their purchases over $300? Well, They do all those things. So, yes, you should go to JM Bullion when you want to buy your silver and gold. And what if the guy you trust and listen to every day, me, Jack, had the uh, president of the company on a first-name basis through email, and if there was ever a problem, could get in touch with him and say, hey, fix this, even though he doesn't ever have to. The fact that that's there, isn't that good to know? JM Bullion, get your silver and gold there. That's where I get mine. Give them a shot. You'll see why. Next up today, the other precious metal. Copper jacketed lead from our friends over at BulkAmmo.com. You talk about a long-term relationship. Bulk Ammo has been a sponsor of the show for eight years now. And if you give them a shot, you'll see why, pun intended, give them a shot. Um, it's ammo that dries up first when the gun grabbers start talking, and the gun grabbers are talking a lot right now. You want to stock up on ammo. You know it's been hard to get recently. Some of it is back in stock, and you will have it lightning fast if you order at BulkAmmo.com, and they do a discount for MSB members as well. With that, let's kind of dig right on into it today. Um, I want to start out with a quote of the day, and it ties into the live stream that I did this morning. I don't generally quote politicians, and I certainly don't generally quote monarchs. Um, however, when I saw this quote today, I'm like, this is a great quote. And if I could quote somebody else saying it, I would. But Queen Elizabeth I said, The past cannot be cured. And I'll leave how it relates to my live stream today and, and for the next segment. But I just want to say this is something that I think many people 
need to understand. And I think there's two ways to look at this, a micro to the individual and a macro to society. And on the macro to society, I think a lot of the wokeism that we're dealing with today, the retardism, the, just the idiocy of, of the left, the idiocy of the educational system, both at the, uh, the, 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 the primary and secondary levels and, and then the, 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 the collegiate level, all of it, is a desire to actually cure the past. That's why they want to tear down statues. Or a, like, these bad things happen. We should make them go away. You can't. You can't cure the past. You can only understand it. And instead of studying the past, and relative to its context of the time, we want to eviscerate the, the past in an attempt to cure it, and it cannot be done. But the lesson at the micro for you is, same thing applies to your life. I guarantee you, because you're human, you have screwed some things up in your past. You cannot cure your past. You can only cure your present and impact your future. That's our quote of the day. On that, I do want to say something about some recent live streams. So this weekend, I did a live stream on the back porch drinking Bloody Marys. And I actually had one real Bloody Mary, and the rest were Virgin Marys. Um, but I thought, you know, my wife was out of town just hanging out with the dogs. It was beautiful outside. I'll set up the webcam outside. I'll sit and I'll chat with everybody for about an hour. And it'll just be light and easy going. So I get on and the first thing people ask me about is um, Biden's mandate uh, that affects employers and stuff. And I won't go into it because I, I covered it there. And that put us into a tone. And then I made a really big announcement that I'm not going to tell you. You'll have to go check out that the, the recording of it if you want to know if you, if you didn't find out. Uh, about something I've been working on, and that we won't fully be coming out with it until our workshop um, th this November. And then we started bringing people on and just having discussion. Nicole Sauce jumped on with me, and she hung out with me. It went almost four hours. And we didn't even start to see the number of people in the audience decline until like the last 15 minutes. And then it ended with a great thing. Charles the Humble Mechanic jumped on with us for about 10 minutes. And it was really great. I just want to let you know that it happened. It exists. It's there. It's on my Odyssey. It's on my YouTube. I have a link today where you can go check it out if you want to. The other thing I want to let you know is kind of, and I'm letting you know this because it's going to affect programming this week, is to the Friday show of the Miyagi Mornings recap. I did a Miyagi Mornings live stream today that was on dealing with your life after military service and understanding why you think and do the things that you do. It came from a really heartfelt question. And, of course, normally I take all of the Miyagis and I put them together in a recap episode at the end of the week. And that episode will range from an hour to an hour and 20 minutes or there. This one episode was over 40 minutes. So I'm not going to run it Friday. If you or someone you know has served and has some issues that they're dealing with, this would be a good one to go ahead and listen to right away. I'm going to kind of put it in the can and hold it. I've got some time coming free, you know, very soon where I've got a fishing trip I'm taking because I owe somebody. Uh, I'm taking a second vacation this year right back to Sanibel Island because my wife deserves it. And then I have a workshop coming up. So I'm going to have a need for some content during some gaps. And I'm going to use that as a standalone podcast. And I, I think it warrants it. And I have to tell you that um, I, I'm delayed in getting started in, in, in this podcast today because when I got done with that episode, and I'm very glad that I did it, and I think it went very well, I felt exhausted. Like I had just worked for a week with very little rest. It, it took a lot out of me. And it wasn't because I was amped up and, and energetic or anything. It was just reliving a lot of things and 
because I wasn't just reliving my military service. I was What I was really reliving was 28 years of my life since I served in the military, which is what I was focusing on with that. So just so you know, that's there, but it will not be in this Friday's podcast, but it will be in a future podcast as a standalone. Uh, but if you want to check it out now, I, I think this will be one that a lot of people who are veterans or close to veterans will listen to more than once. So I just want to let you know about that. Also, I announced the dates for the November workshop, which to veterans that have been around a while will come as no surprise. It's the week of November 11th, Veterans Day weekend, or Veterans Day week. It just usually ends up that way due to timing and when the holidays start and you know, Dorothy and I pushing it as far out as we can so we're really ready when it's time to go. But the workshop will be November 11 to 13, and people come and set up the day before the workshop starts, so it'll actually be the 10th. Uh, through people, a lot of people stay over for Saturday night because, well, things get really late and rowdy on Saturday night. And so by Sunday morning, I kick you off. So it's the 10th through the 14th is when the property's open. And um, I think I put the wrong date, but I, I think it's pretty clear when the tickets are going on sale in the post, and I will amend the post. But tickets will go on sale Saturday, September 25th. That gives you, you know, plenty of time to kind of to get ready for this. It's next Saturday. Saturday the 25th at 9 Central Standard Time. And the way that I'm going to, to drop the link to sign up, I'm going to drop it in our Telegram uh, channel and group. Um, and that kind of incentivizes people to be there. It makes it a fair jump ball. I've had quite a few people already contact me, and I always feel bad when I have to say no to this, but I've got people that are like, well, I'm going to be hunting or I'm going to be away. There's gonna be, I'm going to be at work. There's no way I'm going to be able to sign up. At the, can I pre-buy the tickets or whatever? I can't do it. I can't do it, and the reason is that I do have a limit, and they do sell out, and just because you were going to be available doesn't mean you would get one. So it's kind of like letting you jump the line in front of people. And every year there are people that don't get in that I feel bad about not getting in, people that I know, people that have been to multiples, and I I just can't. So what I suggest is if you can't be there to buy tickets, you kind of walk somebody through the process and get them to do it for you. Um, you know, somebody you trust or whatever. Like just, But just so you know, it's next Saturday, the 25th of September, the tickets will go on sale. That gives you a f well over a full month to have flight arrangements and stuff like that. People always ask where to fly into, either DFW Airport or Love Field, and DFW is much more convenient. But Love Field is an option as well. The Love Field is over in downtown Dallas. Uh, DFW is kind of right between Fort Worth and Dallas, and I'm on the Fort Worth side. All right, with that, let's, um, let's dig into some of the emails that, that drove today's show. So we're actually doing real listener feedback. Uh, Greg, Greg sent me an email. And the short version, I have a link to the write-up on um, Austin Community College's website. The short version is ACC is excited to partner with Toyota. Their students will be working with state-of-the-art facilities with the right training to be successful, says Dr. Richard Rhodes, ACC chancellor, because you need to have a Ph.D. to know how to work on a Toyota these days. But basically, the, the, the entire concept here is if you're attending Austin Community College now, you, you can basically go to tech school and get ASC certification uh, to work on Toyota and Lexus. And you pretty much, if you do a good job and you get decent grades and you learn your trade, you kind of have a job waiting for you on the other side of it because there's a shortage of people that can do this job. And as Greg uh, pointed out when he sent this, uh, this is something I've been talking about. And it's not about automotive work. It's not about even really 
University of Austin, or Austin Community College becoming a trade school. What it's really about is a complete transformation of higher education. And in some ways, I think what we're going to see here is the market legitimizing that which the brainwashing has delegitimized. So you can go be an automotive technician. Sounds a lot better than a mechanic, doesn't it? You're a mechanic. That's what this is. These are look, that's I was a mechanic in the military. I have a lot of respect for mechanics. Mechanic is a good trade where you can make good money and pretty much have a job period. And if you stay up on your skill set and your development and your learning, it doesn't matter if the cars all become electric motored, right? It doesn't matter what happens. Somebody still has to work on them. It doesn't even matter if they need less maintenance in, in time. Someone has to do the maintaining. And so for you know the average human lifetime, you have a career. And there's all types of things that can springboard into other opportunities, right? Um, if you can be a really good, successful technician working in a shop, you also have movement within the entity, the organization itself of Toyota or Lexus. Not exactly a bad place to work. And like I said, though, this really isn't about automotive technology. This is the way of the future. So if you go to, you know, Lincoln Tech or something, like oh, whatever, you're a mechanic or an electronics technician or something, um, people I don't think really look at it the same way as you went to college, right? And what we're going to see is more and more, and it'll be everything from community colleges, which are really cheap and affordable to go to, and you qualify like lightning for your student loans for it, Etc. Um, the, the, you know, here's another thing: it opens up a huge chasm of money in the form of scholarships. A lot of scholarships can't be used to go to trade school, but they can be used to get a trade school education out of university. You see how that works, right? And but what we're really seeing is the market marketing. So we spent the last, and I would say in earnest, the last 40 years. Teaching our young people, you're nothing without a college degree. That's what every call, every child should go to college. An education is priceless, really is. And this has resulted in a massive shortage of people that can do things that need doing because we have people running around with, honest to God, useless degrees. And I'm not going to wail on college today, but it's what happened, right? We have tons of people that have degrees that have no meaningful purpose. If I hire you with that degree, or I hire somebody else with the same aptitude, same age, same work ethic, without that degree, I don't get anything as an employer by hiring you with a degree that I don't get with the person without the degree. In fact, in some ways, I may have a better employee than the person without the degree because they're not worried about paying student loans back because they don't have them. They're more worried about building their life. That means they're going to see more value in what I do for them. You just see me as a way to get, unload your debt as quickly as possible. That other person sees the way as, as build their career. Not always, but maybe. I mean, if there's going to be a difference, that's what it's going to be. I don't get anything out of hiring somebody into many jobs with a communications degree. I don't get anything. Or a marketing degree, because most marketing degrees are pretty much worthless as well. I hired a guy with a marketing degree. You know what I hired him to do? Web development. You know why? He was good at web development. You know how he learned to do web development? He bought four books on web development and locked himself in his room for two weeks after he couldn't get a job in marketing with a degree from a very prestigious school in marketing. 
You know why? It wasn't good at marketing. So we have this gap now. All these things that people need to be able to do. And this is not just, when I say technical, I don't just mean working on cars. I mean technical like how to develop software solutions using Android platform. Because we have programs like that now. Where Google's like, we need developers. That's what we do. We develop shit on our own platform. We need people to know how to do it. Creating programs sometimes with schools, sometimes with online learning uh, uh you know, platforms like Udacity or what have you, sometimes where the person can actually take them for free and then pay for the certification only. So once they've mastered it enough to do the test, they pay to be tested. And it's very inexpensive and very fast. And if they come out the other side of it, Google's like, you may have a job now. And this is because the market is marketing. No matter how much the government, and this is the, this is the, the, the fundamental economic reality here, no matter how much the government interferes, And they could even throw things off the rails for 40 or 50 years, like they've done here. Sooner or later, the market demand will reign superior over everything else. You're about to see a gutting and evisceration of the college-university system. And you're going to see programs like this as to how they hang on. But let's face it, one does not need to go to Columbia to learn how to work on a Lexus. In fact, one probably should not. One probably should not. And the shift that began way before we even started TSP that I've been talking about in this has been accelerated by the whole shutdown with COVID and people learning from home and distance learning and people starting to say, well, then why am I paying so much for this? And it's just another sign of things to come. This is going to just keep going and keep going and keep going. And I'm going to tell you, in 10 years, you will not recognize the education system in America. And I mean... K through 12, and I mean college, and I mean trade school, and I mean doctorate programs, and all of it. It will all still exist. It will all be smaller and more specialized, and this will be the norm. That a young person will say, well, the reason I'm getting an education is so I can get a job. This is the job I want. What is the pathway to the job? Which is kind of a logical way to go, and the market will always push us back to logic. Just something to think about in the long run. Next up, I've also talked about the fact that the real estate market is eventually going to fall on its ass. That this incredible run-up in property prices cannot be sustained. Specifically in the suburb environment. That the place that, that may become very hard to find a place to live is going to be kind of the urban-rural fringe and out until you get way out in the middle of nowhere. Because there's there's far fewer properties that are like that. When it comes to properties that, you know, you can look to the left and there's your neighbor, look to the right and there's your neighbor, and if you can spit really hard across the street and hit another neighbor's house, there's lots of those. We, we built them in a mass production model. and we started We started it, honestly, in the 20s to a degree. But we, we went to full industrial speed after World War II and the baby boom generation came on board. And we kept doing it. And I remember, God, just not even that long ago, it seems. I mean, we were talking like early 2000s. I had friends that were entrepreneurs and, and locally here in Dallas-Fort Worth. And their entire business was they had these big trailers that would, would haul hundreds of signs, like little signs you stick in the ground, you know, choice homes, solitaire homes, whatever. 
And because there was so much growth going on and so much building going on, and there was so much like, you know, this cheap, low cost, put a sign in the ground on every street corner marketing of where to find the open houses, where to find the demo homes, etc. Most of the local um, governments said, okay, we understand this is necessary. People are trying to find homes. that We want them to live here. We want them to pay taxes, etc. But we can't have this all the time. So what they did is they came to a compromise. It was one of the times I saw a government come up with a compromise that most people were like, yeah, okay. And the compromise was you can put your signs out after 4 o'clock on Friday, and they have to be picked up like by 4 o'clock on Sunday. And then you can put them back out next Friday. And so two, two people that I knew really well went into this, and they were making very good living just putting out and picking up signs. I mean, the one guy had this huge trailer. You know, it was, it was, damn, it looked at me, I don't know how many he had, I, I don't remember that long back, but it, it looked like a thousand signs, he'd go to, and there was, that was that much development going on. And that's less than 20 years ago. And that was going on all over the place. So there's an article that came out yesterday on Yahoo Finance. This chart shows why the housing market may see an end of September shock, and they don't mean a shortage of supply shock, and You can read the article if you want. I'm linking to it for you in the show notes if you'd like to see. But the the decline in houses that are um, being bought is extreme. And the upshot of the article is that as the prices kept going up, buyers chased the prices up. And the inventory was short in short supply, so people kept chasing the price. And that you end when when you look at buyers, and this is what the article doesn't say, and this is the more important thing to understand. Basically, they said like the, the the guy that wrote the article has come to the conclusion that people became sane and decided the price has just gone too high, and they stopped buying. No, no. Um, all the crazy, stupid people willing to overpay for property have spent their money and bought houses, many of them overpriced. There was this massive, massive influx of buyers. And it's exactly what I said hap happened while it was going on. And before it happened, I said it would happen. When they did this shit with the shutdown with COVID, so many people living in these very expensive cities were like, well, if I have to work from home, Why am I paying $3,500 for a one-bedroom apartment when half of that, you know, across the state line will get me a look, like a house like, like Leave it to Beaver lived in? And that, and, and then they started making deals. They started getting in touch with their employers and saying, look, we don't know how long this is going to last, but are you happy with the work I've been doing for you? And their employers are like, yeah, actually, it's better than it ever was. Well, then how about we make this permanent? And employers started making those deals. In some cases, the employers looked at this and went, okay, my entire workforce is happier. My bottom line is, is good or better. And we're paying $9 million a year for this building. That building has to go. So as that commercial real estate got liquidated, a massive amount of residential real estate surrounding it got liquidated. And these people hauled ass into the suburbs. And there's a certain mindset If I'm coming from the other side of Houston to this side of Houston, and I've lived in Houston my whole life, 
There's a number in my head that is the absolute maximum I'm going to pay for a four-bedroom, two-bathroom house with a nice backyard. There's, there's like a number in my mind. Like, and if you go over that number, I'm not going there with you. I just know better. Okay? And there's a different number in the mind of somebody that's moving from Los Angeles to Houston or Philadelphia to Houston. Right? Because they're used to paying, like, they're not even, put away the $3,500 a month for the one-bedroom apartment. That already is also in their head. They've already been shopping. A person that's at this stage in their life, we're not only going to move, they're going to buy a house. People don't just like, they're renting on Friday and Monday they go out and buy a house with no transitional mental period, right? People always, if, if, you, if you own a house now and if you rented when you started like most do, there was a point where you kind of thought, I should get a house for whatever reason. And then you started like shopping. And then you got depressed or you got excited depending on what you found. But you, you formed an idea of value in your mind of what a 3-2 would cost or a 4-2 would cost. Right? You, you had this idea of how much it would be. So when you're coming from a place where that number is much higher and the house in Houston goes up by 40%, in your mind it's still cheap, and if the bank will still give you the money, and they would, then you'll pay it. Well, that mass migration has mostly happened. It's not over, but it's mostly happened, the front end of it. And so it, it gobbled up the inventory, but then the buying stopped, and the inventory didn't go away. It still continued to be a little bit more here and a little bit more there, and now we have more inventory than buyers. So we still have prices elevated, but they're coming down, just like I said they were last month when I talked about our land shopping. And we're watching it. And I, you see this cycle play out in the stock market. You see it play out in the crypto market. You see it play out in the housing market. You see it play, play out everywhere. When you see a run-up and everything's up, you're going to see a drop. And in this case, I think the drop might be worse than our friends at Yahoo who wrote this article realize. Um, on top of this, finally... People are going to get their ass evicted from houses they haven't paid rent on in over a year. Finally. So if, if you've been living under a rock, you don't know there was an eviction moratorium. So if I got a deadbeat living in my rental house, I just have to eat it. I can't get rid of them. Been like that just about since COVID started. Because we can't have the poor people thrown out in their, the street in the middle of a pandemic where people are going to be dying left and right. That was the mindset when we started. And we shut down the economy and what have you. So that ran out. And the Biden administration just said, no, it didn't. We're just saying it's still in force. And the Supreme Court said, nuh-uh. And then Biden had um, the CDC director that he just kind of threw in, or I don't know if she's the director, whatever, the head of the CDC now, uh, the, the, the brunette with the short hair that has like literally no business being in charge because she has literally no relevant experience to being put into a position like that, basically said, hey, why don't you come out and say, in the opinion of the CDC, There's a medical emergency, and there's a medical reason to tell the Supreme Court to go blow. And so they did that, and then the Supreme Court said, nuh-uh, and so that was struck down. So now what you're about to have is a massive number of evictions from rental homes. Now, that is going to put a bunch of people on the street looking for housing, but they're all going to be looking for housing that's what? Cheaper than the one they just got thrown out of. Uh, many of them are going to end up moving to government projects or things like that. 
And then there's a lot of really great housing that's going to come on the market. And either now that the tenant's out, they're going to want to put a new tenant in it, or, you know, I've had enough of this landlord shit, and you're going to see liquidation of uh, real estate portfolios by a lot of these people because there's still a pretty good premium on the property. And there's plenty of companies like BlackRock willing to buy them, and then they're willing to rent them out. So you, you have, like, a triple whammy coming to real estate prices right now. Now, the places I think this will be less effective are going to be as far out as I am, for those of you who have been to my property, but more so even further. Like, it's, it's really hard to find a property like I have. That's why I bought it in spite of some of the, the flaws that it had. Where you literally, like, downtown's right over there, and I can live like I'm way out in the country. The place, though, that it's going to get, you're going to start seeing, you're going to see a drop, a short-term drop, and then really heavy upward pressure. Once, once you get people more into the mindset of, hey, if I can live anywhere, I can live over there, because that, that, more of that's coming. And there's far less inventory like this. What you're looking for is right at the edge of what's convenient to drive into the major metro area for work every day. How far, and this, this varies, by the way. There's places where if it's more than 30 minutes to your job, people will not buy a freaking house more than 30 minutes. And there are places like here in Texas that number's much bigger. I know plenty of people drive an hour to work every day and not just due to traffic, right? So when you find that, it's going to be just past that edge right now where the sweet deals are. It's as close as you can be without paying for the convenience of being right there. But that's going to, that, that, this is where it's kind of the same but different all over. Wherever that border is in, in where you live is going to like, a, like an expanding bullseye begin to slowly expand over time. And to find kind of that sweet spot homestead type thing that many of us want, the, the distance out is going to become further and further and further. And the value inside that is going to go up, 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 up. Now, what happens when that value starts to be expressed in property taxes? We'll see. We'll see, because there is a, there is a, as much as I love it here, there's a, there's a limit, there's a threshold that I will not go over, um, and I know many people are hitting that too, but the real estate market is about to look like a roller coaster with a bunch of people getting sick on it at the same time. That's, it's exactly what I said would happen last summer when I started talking about the megatrends, and it's coming right now, and this is just the beginning of it. So I also got an email. Let me see if I can find it real quick. And kudos, of, before I go forward, kudos to Mark on that last one for sending me that email. And Mark is a person that I know moved because he got tired of paying property taxes and did exactly that, just outside the distance that's convenient for people. Anyway, next up, um, don't have this gentleman's name. Uh, I'm going to say Sam because that's part of the email address, and it may or may not actually be the name. Um but he says, your crystal ball is dead on. Read this in Barron's this morning. It's like you wrote it. Um, oh, PA Farmer Sean. So it's from PA Farmer Sean. Again, I'm not going to read the article to you because I think that bores people when you sit here and read articles unless you're making a very specific point with it. Um, but I said last week in the Miyagi mornings, and then it went on the recap on Friday, that they were going to approve a Bitcoin ETF, and it would be probably in October but it wouldn't be the kind of Bitcoin ETF that you expected it would be. 
that it was going to be a futures ETF because this allowed for a lot of shenanigans and manipulation of the uh, price of Bitcoin because the institutions now are gobbling up Bitcoin, but they're doing it really, really slow. And they're doing it without a lot of fanfare. If, it, if a company can buy Bitcoin without telling anybody, that's what they're doing right now. So there's, there's two types of institutions gobbling up crypto in general, but it's really Bitcoin and to a lesser degree Ethereum. And it's, it's, it's mostly Bitcoin. And one is what we would call a public institution. But when I say public institution, I mean a company that sells stock on a public exchange that anybody can buy. These folks, whatever they do with crypto, whether it's buying it or buying um, a company that delves in it, like some of the stuff that came out from Visa, uh, picking up an entity that does, uh, that does analysis of crypto blockchains this weekend, they have to spin it positive because they definitely don't want to spin it negative and they have to disclose it within a certain amount of time. If, for instance, we mentioned earlier Toyota, Lexus, whatever, if Toyota Corporation, which is a publicly uh, held stock, goes out tomorrow and buys a thousand bitcoins and puts them on their balance sheet and it is an alternative to cash as a form of reserve capital. They don't have to tell you today, but by their next investor report, they have to tell you. They have to disclose that. So if you're MicroStrategy and you're Michael Saylor and you're going to do this with your company, you might as well go big with it. But like I said, I think a lot of other large, you know, multi-billion dollar concerns are saying, Michael, shut up, not yet. Michael, shut up, not yet. And Michael's like, hey, this is in my best interest. I'm going to do it anyway, right? Uh, but, but one way or another, they have to tell you. But there is a ton of institutional money in the billions and billions of dollars that are not public entities in that way. And they don't have to disclose what they're doing to anybody except their, their investors directly. And, and many times you might be talking about a fund that's managing you know, $5 billion, but there's only you know, 200 people in it. They're all very, very rich, and you don't know any of their names. It's the, one of the big clubs you're not in. They use you to beat you over the head with it, and, and when you go, halfway go unconscious, that's the American dream because it's a lie, right? That's the George, Car George Carlin in a nutshell, right? Um, and they're acquiring this stuff. And they don't want the price to run away too fast. And by the way, just for those that are new to the Bitcoin roller coaster, September is usually a shitty month. In years that finish strong, and when I say strong, I mean incredible Q4s. Huge Q4s going into early Q1 of the next year. Like rocket level takeoffs, September sucks. This is par for the course, it's supposed to suck, and I think they're trying to make it suck more. But I think they're trying to set up a situation because if you think Gary Gensler operates in a vacuum and doesn't care what all these billionaires that are doing this think, you, are, you don't know how the system works. And so they're going to release this um, futures ETF before a spot ETF. And for those who didn't hear the show last week, a spot ETF is the one you're most likely familiar with. If silver's trading for $30 an ounce and you buy into a, uh, an ETF that really exists called SLV, which is a silver ETF today, and I don't know what silver strength, I'm just round number, 30 bucks, and you put in you know, $120, basically your four shares are four ounces of silver. And then the way that fund makes its money is there's a management fee for doing this, and they try to maintain an equilibrium. 
So if it was a Bitcoin fund for $44,000 and change, there'd be one Bitcoin, and it would be this balancing act. Futures trade on options, right, puts and calls, shorts and longs, and they're confusing. But if you open up billions and billions of dollars into the futures market, that's money that exists right now, but it can't go indirect. A lot of these institutions, even that aren't public, They're chartered institutions is what they call them. And what that means is when you get your investors together, you write a charter that says this is how we're going to manage the money that goes in. This is what we can and what we cannot do. And even if the investors are like, do it, our charter says we can't do it. Well, I'll take my money out. Well, the charter actually says the money has to kind of stay here right now. So you end up in this place where you have this money And that's one reason Saylor, Michael Saylor, was able to do what he did because a lot of the money, he borrowed the money to leverage into Bitcoin. Okay? Now, why did he do that? The investors wanted access to Bitcoin exposure with this pool of money, and they couldn't buy Bitcoin, but they could buy corporate debt. See how that finagles around? Well, if you open up this wall of money in the futures market, but not the spot market, you can engage in what I called last week exactly what it is, a massive amount of fuckery. Well, what this article in Barron says, like, you know, came out just after I said this was, the long-awaited Bitcoin exchange-traded fund might finally become a reality, but not in the way many investors expected. And it basically says that they are against the... Um, I guess the wishes of, of the people behind the Grayscale Fund, which I can understand why, probably going to release the Futures Fund first. How did I know that? Because if I were them and I was doing what they're doing, it's what I would do. It's not Spirico Domus. It's not the crystal ball. It's just pretty obvious that that's what they would want to do. And the other thing that they might be able to do is increase the pressure toward more regulation with it because if if people kind of get hurt in it that go into it without understanding it and they will then they'll say see where if you if you give the average person who wants to take a little piece of their retirement money five percent and put it in bitcoin if you give them a spot etf they just they're going to buy it and they're not going to care they're not going to care if it goes down 20 or 30 percent because they don't care when their stocks do The kind of money you're talking about here, the average Joe and Jane's money that sits in a retirement account, they dollar cost average over time, and they don't look at it every day. Like if you hold cryptocurrency, you probably have an app or a wallet or something, and you look at it a couple times a day. Did it go up? Did it go down? It's meaningless in the long term unless you're a trader, right? But you don't do that with your 401k. It's long-term locked up money. And, and the easy way and the safest way to open those people up to the right to, to invest their money the way they want to is a spot ETF, which they'll do second because it benefits them and not you. It's real simple to understand. Uh, next, I, I found this one interesting. Um, David says, actually it's Carla. Carla says, um, homesteader and small business owner. Uh, I'm a listener in Oregon contemplating a change for various reasons in my life, but your show on COVID craziness is prompting me to ask you the following question about your assertion that moving somewhere less tyrannical is a solution. I know you also did suggest getting involved to affect change. My question is, doesn't the U.S. government ultimately have the authority and control to supersede state laws? 
If so, how does moving to Florida or Texas or South Dakota really matter if the feds decide to implement martial law, for example, or vaccine mandates? Thanks for what you do, Carla. Okay, Carla, don't take this the wrong way, but I've been saying this forever. If your aunt had balls, she'd be your uncle, right? Despite what the woke crowd thinks. Like that's, you, you, well, what if? We, we have to live our life on probability scales, not completely wild, etherical what ifs, right? Because for all we know, your aunt was actually a guy whose balls never dropped, and maybe they will. I mean, it's, po it's not likely, but it's possible. We're not gonna, we're not gonna, like, treat Aunt Car, you know, Aunt Carla, like 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 Aunt Carl, just because it might happen, right? That would be that was not the way. So we're gonna have to make some some judgments based on probabilities. Now, you also have to say, well, look at what they're doing right now. And my, I'm gonna tell you flat out, my life in Texas is a lot more normal than your life in Oregon. Period. So while the craziness is going on. This federal republic has already shown that it's one of the few things that actually works as designed to a degree. Now, it's not to the level I think it should be. I think that the is for all the people that love the Constitution so much, you're missing the very important first three words in the Constitution, con. The Constitution was never even supposed to happen. We won't get it in today. But it was, it, it was supposed to be a rewriting of the Articles of Confederation, the first governing document of the country. And a lot of people that were supposed to be there weren't even there. Okay, so we've been conned. And the reduction in the power of individual states is part of the con. It's a huge part of the con. But it still exists. So the federal government can interfere, but in the end... The thing that has impacted the lives of people the most during this shit has been their governor. Now, that mitigates my argument, because if you get a new governor who won't stand up, then that all works against you. But at least there's local remedy. Local remedy is much easier to exercise than national remedy. There's also another thing here. What you're talking about is known as federal supremacy. And this is how federal supremacy works. If there are two laws, a federal law and a state-level law, that are in conflict with each other, and both laws are constitutional laws under both the federal and then the state's own constitution, then the federal law supersedes, through supremacy, the state's law. That's a lot of ifs in there. That's a lot of ifs. So we have the Ninth Amendment and the Tenth Amendment. And so the first question would be, does the Constitution specifically give the federal government the power to do this thing? Because if it doesn't, then there is no federal supremacy, because if the Constitution doesn't specifically give the federal government a power, then the power lies with the state. It says so right in the Constitution. You read it for yourself. Does that mean that the courts always follow that? Does that mean that the government always follows that? No. But I'll put it to you this way. Who's better suited to stand up against Washington, you and me, or the state of Texas? And, and if, if we put our ego aside, we're real quick to say the state of Texas. Now, will they or won't they? That's a different question. But all I can say is, if you're surrounded by people that want more government, you're going to get more government. 
And if you're surrounded by people that push back against government, you're going to have less government. And my, my bigger problem here is not, oh, Texas is so much better than Oregon, or Florida is so much better than Oregon. It's how bad Oregon is. It's how bad Oregon is. You, I, I feel like some of these states, you have people literally, it's like, it's like some sort of weird sadomasochism or something, like smack me harder, daddy, is, is how this seems to be playing out. So don't think that the federal government can just override the state, that it's that simple, that there's nothing the state can do to resist. And then the other side of this is, I'll, I'll save it for my, my final segment, but just putting a kind of a, a bug in your ear or a, like maybe a, an idea in your brain right now, Who's to say that the state complies? Just because the federal government says so, and even if the Supreme Court says so, who says that the state actually complies? We, we, we live under this illusion. Like, Think about this. The Constitution is very clear. Things that the federal government is, is, is given the power to do, And things that it's not given the power to do. And if there's, in the way that basic common contract law works, whoever drafted the contract, if there's an ambiguity, it benefits the party that didn't draft it. That's me. That's you. We didn't draft the, the, the contract that is the Constitution. The government did. So if there's an ambiguity, you side with the people. This is, this is contract law principle that predates the existence or the thought of the United States. That's how old it is. And then it's very clear, like, these are the things that the, the federal government is empowered to do. These are the enumerated powers of the federal government. Okay? And if it's not in that list, they don't have the power to do it. And they do it all the time anyway. And they do it in defiance of court orders. We just talked about it. Biden issued a second eviction moratorium, was shot down by the, the court, and, and issued a third, and used the full force and power of the government to enforce it, And it was shot down again. And I haven't heard of anybody actually being thrown out yet. So the federal government ignores this all the time. So we think, see, well, wait a minute. If the federal government's going to start ignoring this, why can't the state? The federal government has very limited capacity to enforce anything without local support. That's why they spend so much time deep state style training local law enforcement, sheriff's deputies, etc. That's why they send their thugs in to train them to think like them. Not Whether that's good or bad, that just shows the knowledge of the need. If the So, for instance, when we started decriminalizing marijuana, cannabis in many states, federal government made a show of going in and busting some things and what have you like that. But you notice they never really shut it down? And do you know Why? Because if the governor of the state says to the law enforcement at the state level, don't help them, they can't. They can't. It's not that they don't have the authority. When I say they can't, I mean logistically it's not sustainable. So now you've arrested them. Where are they going to go? Federal prison? All of them? So you could, again, you could take down one dispensary, but you can't take down the whole state. And so... They know they need this. So what prevents a state like Texas just from saying, you know what, we're done. We're not seceding, not yet, but we're done. No, we're not doing this. You'll get no support, no help. We've already had sheriff's deputies tell federal, federal government, you send your people to my county to do this thing, and my deputies will arrest them. 
Don't think it can't happen. So I think there is a point where... When I was in school, it was very rare. But if you got in enough trouble, you could get paddled. Okay? And I think it's wrong. I don't think we should hit kids. But I'll acknowledge the fact that it was there influenced the behavior of everybody, not just the kids that got paddled. The fact that the state has enough horsepower and authority, I'm talking about lowercase state now, Texas, Florida, Georgia, whatever, to say no and really make a stand is enough to keep some of these things from happening or the federal government from only pushing them so far. And again, I'll just say, if I told you how crazy things would be right now five years ago, you would have said I was crazy. And as crazy as they are, there's a dramatic difference in your life and my life. And if, if I'm running a business here, and you're running a business there, there's a dramatic difference. And it's not just things like vaccines and passports and masking and shutting down. It's also shutting down businesses. So I would ask you, how is Joe Biden going to shut down a local business that I'm going to do business with here in Texas from Washington when the governor of Texas says we're not shutting down businesses in Texas and orders all law enforcement throughout the state do not, do not assist? So even if you can mandate vaccines, whatever that means, how are you going to do this? Are you going to send the federal marshals in or the FBI in to shut down every business in the state of Texas? Good luck. Good luck. And what happens if you do? We'll get to that. It's kind of the final bullet point today. Next up, I have an email here from John. I haven't heard from you in a while, John. Glad. Thanks for John and Moore Park. Thanks for sending this. Uh, it's a link to a uh, link on Facebook that did not play, and it crashed my computer, so I'm not going to link to it. But I linked to a news story about the same thing. Um, in New Zealand recently, there was a mass stabbing. A mass stabbing. At least one store or chain of stores, which I'm not even sure how you go to the store to buy a knife right now because you're on lockdown in New Zealand, um, said we're not going to sell knives for a while until we figure out what's going on here. And now, of course, clowns within New Zealand's government are talking about a knife ban because there was a mass stabbing. And, well, would you ban all knives? Are you going to ban my steak knife? Well, maybe your steak knife can't have a point on it anymore. Like, that's the kind of thing being discussed. And I'm not going to get into the particulars of what's being discussed here. You know, how long a knife can be? Is it really banned? Does that mean you can't own a knife or does it mean you can't carry a knife? Well, you know, all types of weird shit are being discussed. But I think what's being missed here, the bigger problem, why are they even talking about this? And if you're a thinking person, you might say, well, because they don't have guns, so obviously mass killers are going to use something else. So the whole reason there was a mass stabbing that couldn't be easily stopped is because nobody had a gun, and because nobody had a gun, the killer used the knife. So that's how we got here. I didn't ask that, though. Why are we talking about banning knives? Because it's become what you do. Because it's become what you do. This is the danger in allowing a right to be taken because somebody else abused the right. I believe that you do have a right to carry anything you want as long as you don't harm anybody else with it. I don't care what it is. No, and I, I'm including a fully automatic sawed-off shotgun that shoots two-gauge explosive grenades. Yes, I believe if that's what you want to carry, you should be able to carry it right on your back. No problem. Now, I also believe that if somebody owns a business or a piece of property and says you can't bring that on here, they have that right too. I believe in actual freedom. 
So what happens is there's a right to own guns. People own guns. And somebody takes the gun and does a bad thing with the gun. So instead of saying, well, how did, how did this happen? Let's blame the gun. So then we, you know, Australia and New Zealand both enacted very stringent gun control uh, due to mass shootings. Like, we have mass shootings, take away the guns, there won't be mass shootings. So the bigger problem is you have a mass stabbing. Well, what did we do when there were mass shootings? Took away the gun. So what do you do for a mass stabbing? Take away the knife. So what happens next? If, if, if you take, if I literally have a hard time getting, first of all, a knife is just a sharp thing you can stab and cut people with. We've been making these things for a very long time in human history. So if somebody still wants to stab somebody with a knife, much like if somebody still wants to shoot somebody with a gun, you can get your hands on one. But let's just say you're a person and you're very angry and you want to go into a crowd and you want to kill a lot of people. And because they ban guns and ban knives, you're actually having a hard time coming up with a sharp stick to stab people with. So what do you do? Well, maybe you go get a baseball bat. And then maybe you take a bunch of ten-penny nails. And you pound the ten-penny nails like an old-school mace through the baseball bat. And I don't know if you've ever thought about the amount of pressure that can be exerted on somebody's head with something like that, but it's extreme. And the odds that you'll get shot somewhere in the torso with a 9mm and die are pretty high, but the odds you'll live are pretty high. The odds you would survive being hit full bore in the head with a Louisville slugger with 10-penny nails stuck through it are almost zero. So our friend goes berserk with a 10-penny nailed equipped Louisville slugger. Well, you know what we have to do now. We have to ban baseball bats. Well, how are we going to play baseball? I know we'll have permits for the bats. You think I'm kidding? This is the logical progression. Once you start anywhere, this is, this is where some people say the slippery slope argument is a fallacy, not when it actually is happening in front of you. It's not anymore. So then we have to, we'll have to figure out some way, maybe at baseball stadiums, they'll have bats the way they have bowling balls, you know, at a bowling alley. And you can get a certain length and a certain weight. And then, you know, when the kids come to play, we'll have an assortment of bats and you can pick your size and whatever. And then it's all fair and equal, by the way, because nobody has a better bat than anybody else. Right? Everybody within the league is using the same bats. So now I can't get a bat. And you probably ban 10 penny nails, too. So I go out and I hack a big limb off of a tree. And that's going to be hard to ban, but maybe we'll just make it illegal to hack limbs off trees without permits. That makes it hard for me to get a limb to do this with. And so maybe then I take my car and I just go find a place with a whole shitload of people. And I line my car up at the center of the crowd. And I put the gas to the floor and I drive right through the crowd. And maybe I kill 100 people like that. Maybe we need to be more careful about who can even drive a vehicle. Maybe this self-driving vehicle thing's a good idea. Maybe we should just outlaw vehicles that people drive. A computer would never do that. This is the this is this is the slippery slope. And it does start with taking away any legitimate right because some other person abused the right. Instead of punishing the action, we punish the noun, the thing. And it doesn't surprise me that in New Zealand they're talking about banning knives. Including 
ridiculous things like, well, then what do we do for a steak knife? Well, maybe you have a steak knife, but not with a point. This is an actual discussion taking place. Why wouldn't it? Why wouldn't it? And what happens is every time you take a thing from people, they become more enfeebled. They become, the men become more emasculated. They become more weak. And they become more willing to give up something else. Well, we're fine without guns. You know, if it saves one life. It's all the same, and it's the same thing over and over again. Next up, real quick, um, I heard from a bunch of you guys. The SurvivalPodcast.com was mentioned by Ron Paul on the Liberty Report. Thank you for telling me. I'm not going to go long on this, but I do appreciate you guys letting me know. And I've had a bunch of you say, man, it'd be great if you got Ron Paul on, or you went on Ron Paul's show. I have no idea how to even get in touch with him. If anybody knows, let me know. I'd love to have Ron on, and I would certainly um, go chat with him as well. I haven't really made an effort. You know, to do better PR or whatever. I'm kind of in the mode now after 13 years of doing this where I do my thing. And as long as I'm helping people and as long as the show is stable, I'm good. But I probably should do more outreach. So I'd love to have Ron on or, again, be on with Ron. So if any of you have any idea of how to make that happen, let me know. Remember, you can always email me with anything at jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com and TSPC in the subject line. Uh, next up, I'm hearing this from a lot of people. I talked about this in a Miyagi Mornings recently. The U.S. is now where the USSR was in 1989. Is history rhyming? And I say sadly, maybe. But for those that maybe don't understand that, especially people that are a bit younger and don't remember the Soviet Union being in Afghanistan, in 1989, the Soviet Union left Afghanistan, and Afghanistan turned into an effing nightmare of chaos and disarray. And the Taliban, who at the time were known as the Mujahideen, and became the Taliban, took over and became the dominant force in the country. Hmm, interesting. Uh, and then there were these resistors uh, to that, known as the Northern Alliance, who were our allies when we went into Afghanistan 20 years ago, and they kind of disappeared. No one really knows where those guys are anymore. That's also interesting. Um, at the time that this all happened, in the 80s, there was a young man by the name of Osama bin Laden, And if you doubt me, this is not conspiracy theory. He was on the payroll of the CIA, and the CIA was funding uh, with money and munitions the resistance of the Mujahideen against the Soviets because they were the bad guys and communists. And the Soviet Union spent an awful lot of years and spilled an awful lot of blood and an awful lot of treasure. And in 1989, much like the United States, though they did a better job of leaving than we did as far as taking care of their own people, They had their last aircraft, just like us, fly away and go back to the Soviet Union and say, we are done with this. This was a mistake. In 1991, the Soviet Union fell apart, collapsed under its own weight, and many of the republics like Lithuania, Ukraine, Estonia, etc. became independent republics, and we no longer have a USSR. We no longer have an East and West Germany. The Berlin Wall came down, etc., Everything fell apart, and the Soviet Union, despite Russia's attempts, is just not coming back. And if you look at an entity that is an empire, you know, kind of on the level the Soviets were, that's made up of member republic states that could fall apart, there's only one answer to that fill-in-the-blank. That would be the United States of America. But... You have to be careful here because the human mind sees patterns where there are no patterns. We make patterns. People that have like a playlist, you know, they like this song always comes on before this song, even when it's random. It really doesn't. You just notice it every time that it does. 
So that became a pattern. So just because the Soviets left Afghanistan and two or three years later fell apart doesn't mean since the United States left Afghanistan and two or three years we're going to fall apart. But there's maybe a bigger parallel there than people realize. Why did the, U why did the Soviet Union leave Afghanistan? Because it was a mistake and whatever. One of the reasons they left Afghanistan is they had other problems. It was on its way to falling apart. And this is one more way we're expending money and energy that doesn't really serve our interest in any real meaningful way, including staying together. And as far as resisting the U.S. or whatever, like that's not going to matter if we fall apart, which they then did. The problem we have is our similarities to the Soviet Union in the late 80s go far beyond Afghanistan. Do we have our own problems? Are we economically pushed to the absolute end? Do we have satellite republics, member states, who are kind of fed up with the central government? Is there more and more disgust with the central government? Are there loyalists, for lack of a better term, that are very disgusted with the people that are disgusted with the central government, that think those people are the problem? Is there an animosity? Is there an underlying fervent of anger within the people of the United States? Do some of the states, at least on paper, look like they'd probably be better off if they weren't part of this thing anymore? Do the people that live there kind of feel that way? Are we on a path where that division seems to be growing versus shrinking? Like, it's not that we both went to Afghanistan for a long time and screwed everything up there and it's where empires go to die and then we both ran away, realizing we should have never went in the first place. That is the similarity. It's actually the full similarity. And this is not a new comparison. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but there's a, uh, a former Soviet. I think he's a U.S. citizen now. At least he's a U.S. national. Uh, he's a Ph.D., I believe, who wrote a thesis on this like nine years ago. That, this, that the United States was going to fall apart like the Soviet Union did, and here is why. Now, I don't agree with all his conclusions, because one of his ideas is, and Alaska will go back to Russia. I, I No. That might be a bridge too far. But the logic behind why there might be a breakup of the member states into individual states that have their own sovereignty or regions, collective you know, banding together of smaller republics together, because Texas can stand as a nation. There, if you look at other nations in the world, there's literally no case that can be made that Texas can't stand as a nation. That's not ego or whatever. And Florida could, too. Florida, it's not just the electrical grid thing. Like There's a lot to having seaports, having enough land, having enough natural resources, having enough inherent intrinsic wealth in the state, etc. It would be very hard, for instance, for Arkansas to stand as a, as, as a country. Its, it's gross, gross product is, is equivalent to some small nations in the world, but it would be really hard. Really hard. But could Arkansas... You know, maybe uh, link up with Oklahoma and Texas, and now they have a seaport. People are like, what about Louisiana? I don't know, man. Louisiana's acting lately. I don't know. Would Texas be willing? I don't know. I, I've had people telling me a lot lately, like, if Texas ever secedes, I'm coming there. I'm like, no, you're not. They're like, what? I'm like, no, you're not. 
if you're going to come, if this place is ever going to be its own country, you better come before, not after. That's like saying if Bitcoin goes to $100,000, I'm going to buy 10 of them. I don't think you are, unless you have a million dollars. I don't think it'll be that simple. I don't think that you're going to be able to carpet bag, basically. Like, if you don't put skin in the game, why do you get to take part in the victory? I, I think there would probably be a cost to come here if this happens. Some cost, especially to come here, stay here, be here. You know, a passport I'm sure you could get, but like to be a national or a citizen, I think it would probably cost some money. I'm not kidding. Like, these are all, this is all now, the thing about this is, I'm not saying this is going to happen. I'm saying this is a reasonable discussion now. And Afghanistan is like COVID. For the average person, it has opened their eyes to what was already there. Like, your, your kid's teacher doesn't suck at distance learning because distance learning sucks. Trust me, I have two kids taking part in distance learning right now through Excellus. It's fantastic. Your kid's teacher sucks at Zoom distance learning because your kid's teacher sucks. You're just seeing it. Okay? That's reality. You're seeing it. You've, you've now been exposed to the reality. The United States didn't just start printing money because COVID. They've been printing money like crazy for decades But now they're doing it at such a level, it's exposed and you're seeing it. The parallels between the Soviet Union and the United States with Afghanistan as a failed war is letting you see all the parallels, if you have eyes to see. And the fact that this is a reasonable discussion to have says how far we've come toward it happening. Again, that doesn't mean that it will. But I think if you honestly sat down in 2000, just 21 years ago, and had this discussion, the U.S. breaking up like the Soviet Union did, you'd be able to point to reasons why it's theoretically possible, but no one would take it as a serious discussion. I think anybody who's remotely logical today, even if they're like, I think the odds against this are long, It's still a serious discussion, and it's something to think about. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you, if you like this show and the work that we do, you can always help support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. I have an item for you I brought you just about a month ago. It's on sale again. I love this little thing. It's cheap. And it's one of those things that's not going to be like help you survive the apocalypse or you know make you wealthier, you know make you healthier or whatever. But it makes your life just a little bit better. It is the Cable Masters six outlet wall mount surge protector. This thing's a little square box, and it's got a plug in the back, and you go up to a standard duplex wall outlet, and you plug it in. And now instead of having two plugs, you have six, and you have two USB power ports on it as well. Has a little light up on the top, and it lights up, and that tells you that the surge protection is working. So now you have a surge protector. You have two USB ports. You have six wall outlets, 110s, and you have a little light. And the only complaint that anybody ever has about it in the reviews on Amazon is a little light. Because they say it's so bright, it's, it, it's too bright. Don't put it in your bedroom. Because I don't like bright, I don't like any light when I'm sleeping at all. I like, the, our room, even with the door closers, like, This light on my stove 
that like bounces underneath the door, and I swear to it's blue, and it's like it's right in my eyes. And at night when I go to bed, I put a, I put a like a, a dish towel over that freaking thing. So I get that, but just don't put it in your room. Now I think the other thing you could do is you you wouldn't know that the protection's working, but you could paint it black if it had to go in there. But again, I don't see this as a thing that really needs to be in people's bedrooms, but hallways, bathrooms, kitchens, living rooms. Now you've got essentially a little night illuminator that when you get up in the night you can see where you're going, especially if you, your your eyes have adjusted to night because you've been asleep. You don't have to turn your lights on, so that's a good thing. So some people I don't think can work lights and can't work simple logic, but if you want to have greater flexibility with power in your home, I love how little space this takes up. It basically takes up no extra space, but it gives you a lot more capability, and it's on sale for like 12 bucks today. So that's why I ran it again for you guys. With that, let's wrap things up with the song of the day. Now, I'm going to confess, last week I, I came up with an idea, and I did it one day, and then I forgot. Uh, and we're going we're gonna to do this for a few weeks now, at least, and I'm not going to forget again. But last week I played a song for you. It was by Jackson Brown, and I said we're doing this thing with Jack's Pandora, and that each week I would pick one of my Pandora channels that I've trained over the years and play four songs from it and let you try to guess who's, who the channel is based on. They wouldn't be like, you know, 80s rock. It would be based on an artist or a band. And, but I wouldn't play any songs from the artist or the band. You would just hear these four songs. And then last week I played one, and then I didn't play any more, and I forgot. Anyway, the artist that I played was Jackson Brown. The channel was based on Van Morrison. Today I have a new week, and I'm going to do this this week for real. I'm not going to screw it up. I have a great song for you, and it's based on an artist, not a band. And that's all I'll tell you. The song that I'm going to play for you today is a country song. It's by Riley Green. Again, it's not his, it's somebody else that the channel's based on. And it's a song I really love. It's called I Wish Grandpa's Never Died. And I think the first time I heard this song, I was working on a project with my grandson. And we were out in my shop, and we're, we're building a bench. And I had him burning the wood, doing a burned wood look with a blowtorch. And it was just a lot of fun. And that song came on, and I was thinking, don't ask me if I'm going to die someday, because I know he knows I will and all, and I'm going to answer him. And, I, you know, it's not a discussion I mind having. Like, this was such a great day. I don't want to downer it at all. Um, it's such a good song, though. And I like this song in a totally different way for the same reason that I like Aaron Lewis's Am I the Only One, because it hits it out of the park over and over and over again. If you listen to all the words... You know, and you think about what this song's really about. It's about more than just this one thing. And there's certain lines in it that are just little jabs, you know, and they're just so perfect. Like, I wish they still played country music on country radio. And I wish car, even cars had truck beds and every road was named Copperhead. And coolers never ran out of cold bud light. There's just a lot of lines in this song that just nail it. And I hope you enjoy it and try to think about it. And I'll give you three more songs this week. And then Monday next week, I'll tell you who the channel's based on. And I'll put a link next week so that if you want to grab my channel into Pandora, you can. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. These girls you love never gave back diamond rings. Wish every porch had a swing 
wish kids still learn to say sir and ma'am had to shake a hand I wish every state had a Birmingham I wish everybody knew all the words to mama tried I wish Monday mornings felt just like Friday nights And I wish even cars had truck beds And every road was named Copperhead And coolers never run out of cold blood life And I wish high school home teams never lost And back road drinking kids never got caught And I wish the price of gas was low And cotton was high I wish honky-tonks didn't have no closing time And I wish grandpas never died I wish Sundays on a creek bank would never end Wish I could learn to drive again Wish the first time 17 she was my everything kiss in a Chevrolet could happen every day. I wish everybody overseas was gonna make it home. I wish country music still got played on country radio. And I wish even cars had truck beds. Every road was named Copperhead And coolers never run out of cold blood life And I wish high school home teams never lost Back road drinking kids never got caught And I wish the price of gas was low And cotton was high And I wish honky-tonks didn't have no closing time Farms never got sold And I wish even cars had truck beds And every road was named Copperhead And coolers never run out of cold bar light I wish high school home teams never lost And back road drinking kids never got caught And I wish the price of gas was low And cotton was high Honky-tonks didn't have no closing time And I wish grandpas never died I wish grandpas never died